Hi everyone, welcome back to Under the Lemon Tree, where today we're going to be discussing the season 1 finale of House of the Dragon, uh, episode 10, The Black Queen. Um, there's so much I'd like to discuss, so I'm just going to get right into it. Um, so this episode begins with just this beautiful sweeping shot of the painted table. Uh, it's not yet lit up yet, as we see later in the episode when they light candles under it and it just beautifully illuminates. It looks like there's lava flowing through it, just lighting up the whole table. And I thought this was interesting because the, the table not being lit at the beginning seemed to represent to me that war has yet to strike. There's not a reason yet for this table to be used, you know, for military strategy. There's not lords standing around it yet um, planning attacks or anything like that. So it's almost like the fire of war has yet to strike. So the table has yet to be illuminated. And the only person there is is Luke, who's touching the driftmark part of the table, you know, and he seems, he he's reflecting on his duties and how he is the heir to driftmark, but it's not something he wants, and he's not sure if he's, if he's suited for it, and he just has this really sweet, you know, beautiful moment with his mom, where he's like, you know, I'm not, you know, why is it me, and, um, I get seasick, you know, um, and it's just, it's so sweet, and his mother, you know, tries to comfort him, telling him, you know, hey, when I was named heir, you know, I, I was terrified, I wasn't prepared for it at all, but we were given our duties, and we have to accept them, um, and it's so sweet how he calls his mother perfect, you know, and she calls him a sweet boy, and you know, comforts him, gives him a, a kiss on the side of his head, you know, there's just such a a tender, loving mother-son relationship there. And I think uh, illustrating that right from the beginning, of course, just adds to the, the, the devastation, the gut pun punch with, uh, with Luke's death later. Um, and it's so, it's so heartbreaking, you know, and, and sweet how this harkens back to episode seven when Corliss was trying to tell Lu Luceris, you know, you're the heir to Driftmark, this is your birthright, and he says that he doesn't want it because it means that everyone else is dead if he takes the takes the Driftwood throne, uh, which is which is so devastating, you know, and is a bitter piece of irony, a bitter uh, piece of foreshadowing there, considering that it's Luke is actually going to be the first one to die, you could say, in this major conflict in this war to come. Um, so yeah, just a lot of the emotional beats and the tension of this episode are being established right at the beginning, and it's it's so sad, but also so sweet seeing the kind of relationship that uh, Rainier and Lucerus seem to, seem to have, um, which just helps to drive home, of course, the kind of impact that his death is, is going to have on Rhaenyra. Um, and then, you know, Rainey shows up, and my heart was just aching for Rainier because she has no idea what's coming to her. She even asks Rainey if she's bringing news about Lord Corlys and if he's recovered, but it turns out, no, that Rainey has come to tell her that her father is dead and that Aegon has already been crowned and has usurped her. You know, they're, she... She had no idea this was coming, and it's just so devastating seeing how 
all this news is thrust upon her at once, you know, she has to try to understand the fact that, like, oh, her father is dead, and now this impending war for the throne is coming to her doorstep, it seems. Like, the the throne has been stolen from her. And her reaction to this news is really interesting, you know, the way that she uh, clutches her her stomach. It seems like she's feeling an interesting mix of, of physical pain, as this is when labor begins for her, but also just you know, these feelings of anger and betrayal and disbelief. She she can't believe that they've crowned Aegon. You know, perhaps she really believed that Alicent wanted to support her the same way that I kind of felt that way too. The last time they saw each other at that dinner scene, Alicent raised her glass and said, you know, Rhaenyra will make a good queen. And it seemed like things were turning around. Um, it connects back to something I've spoken about in an earlier episode. I think it was uh, last week's episode about how um, I wondered if Alicent truly had come around or was coming around to supporting Rainier again over her son um, and if it was just hearing what Viserys said on his deathbed that changed her mind or you know whether she really did secretly want Aegon on the throne all along it's it's interesting seeing that and considering that when we when we look at Rhaenyra's reaction, because she definitely seems to feel a sense of betrayal from Alicent. Um, after she just said that she would support her, and then Alicent turns around and helps to put her own son on the throne. It's devastating, you know? And I I, I wonder if that's what Rhaenyra's feeling in this moment, is, is betrayal, especially from Alicent. Because Damon also uh, blames Alicent in this moment. You know, he claims that Alicent murdered Viserys and then stole his throne so it seems like both of them have blamed Alicent in this moment and Rhaenyra especially seems to be feeling betrayal from her um I thought it was interesting how Damon kind of put together understood that Rhaenys had the opportunity to burn the greens alive and Rainey's response was was kind of interesting to me, where she said that the war is not hers to begin, you know? And I thought it was a little odd hearing her say that, because her grandchildren are betrothed to Rhaenyra's kids, and, you know, betrothed to the heir to the Iron Throne and the heir to Driftmark. So she, she does have a stake in this, you know, by... Having her grandchildren betrothed to Rainier's children, she's created a marriage alliance with with Team Black, with Rainier's team. So to say that it's not her war to start, I thought was a little bit odd. You know, I think I think the truth of the matter may be more so that she just didn't want to kill people if she didn't need to. She didn't want to kill her enemies if she didn't need to. Um, Maybe she didn't think that was a satisfactory, like, answer at that moment, because Damon clearly at that moment was bloodthirsty and was wondering why Rainey's didn't just kill all of them. Um, But yeah, I thought her response there was was odd. Um, And hearing the the music, the way the music transforms over the course of this scene, um, you know, the somber music begins right away the moment that Rainey's breaks the news that Viserys is dead. Um... You know, she really wasted no time strolling in there and breaking this news to poor Rhaenyra. Um, 
And the, over the course of this conversation, the music just turns more and more sinister, especially when she says, um, you know, the Greens are coming for you, Rhaenyra, and your children. Um, you can really feel the the weight of the fear of impending war in this scene, and I think the music only emphasizes that. Tying back to Rhaenys' decision to not burn Team Green, um, I thought it was really interesting hearing what Eve Best, the actress who plays Rhaenys, had to say about that in an Entertainment Weekly article from October 16th, where she said she related Rhaenys's decision to not burn the Greens with um, the war going on in Ukraine right now. And she she stated that that the moment where Rhaenys decides not to kill all her enemies is the moment where she proves just how good of a ruler she could be and how, you know, that the choice, she says, quote, the choice not to drop the bombs is the greater choice, end quote, which is interesting because uh, there are several people who've compared the dragons in House of the Dragon to nukes, uh, to nuclear weapons, you know, because they are in many ways the nukes of this world, you know, only the most powerful people have control of the dragons and they are they're just this incredible power that can start war can end war can hurt you know and kill a lot of people and cause a lot of devastation and not a lot of time um so yeah i've definitely heard that comparison made before and it's interesting hearing eve best make this comparison as well and it just shows another way that this show can relate to the conflicts that we see in our real world, you know, even being a, a fantasy show with dragons it, that takes place in a, in a medieval society, there's so many ways that it can be connected to our world. And I really appreciate how she makes this comment that showcases this, this moral responsibility that people like Rainies have to use their nukes, you could say, their dragons, their weapons responsibly to not hurt people, you know. Um, although, of course, Rhaenys hurts a lot of people anyway by bursting through the, the dragon pit. I mean, obviously, she kills a lot of civilians in the crossfire. Um, but, you know, no one in this show, everyone in this show has blood on their hands. And I think the the, the significant moral conundrum that Rhaenys was faced with in that moment and that um, Eve Best seems to be reflecting on by saying that is, you know, she had the option to end the war right there and just to kill all her enemies in that moment, but she, she chose mercy instead, and that says a lot about her as a person, about her character, and the kind of moral responsibility that people who have control over such powerful weapons have to handle that weapon responsibly so um i thought that was really fascinating and i appreciated her making that that comparison again between house of the dragon and our real world and the real conflicts and conversation happening in our world today moving on to rhaenyra going into labor um, I thought it was interesting hearing in the, the inside the episode after this episode where Emma Darcy talks about how there's just this sense of injustice with how 
war preparations are being made and some of the most important conversations in Rhaenyra's life are happening without her there and how she can't be there because she's she's incapacitated by the fact that she you know is, is giving birth um what I really appreciate about this scene and this conflict with Rhaenyra trying to give birth at the same time that war has come to her doorstep um it really emphasizes this conflict of gender that we feel throughout this show and how you know Emma Darcy has stated before that Rhaenyra feels at odds with her gender in some sense she feels a conflict between her gender and the responsibility that's been put on her to become a ruler since that's considered such a a masculine role you know because only men have ever sat the iron throne um and it seems like the choice to have Rhaenyra you know have struggling through this this is really difficult gruesome childbirth at the same time that she essentially has become queen because her father died and all the conflict that's coming along with that. I think having the choice to have those two events happen at the same time really emphasizes this this conflict of gender that Rhaenyra feels with trying to be a ruler but also trying to be a woman and trying to be a mother and how those roles kind of seem to conflict in this medieval society that can't reconcile the idea of a woman being in power and sitting on the Iron Throne. In an Entertainment Weekly article published on, on October 27th, uh, Emma Darcy kind of expanded a bit more on, on this idea and how Rhaenyra has had this fear ever since, you know, her mother died and how her mother, you know, suffered for so long uh, birthing children, trying to birth children. Rainier's fear of having childbirth incapacitate her and um, how that exact fear seems to be coming true in this moment when she's trying to give birth while, while you know, war is impending and she it's the moment when she is expected to or seemingly supposed to stand up as a ruler, but she, she can't. Um, and there's such a tragedy to that, too. Um, Emma Darcy also stated in a GQ article from October 24th that um, it was a it may have, may have been a bit of a controversial decision to have Rhaenyra um, seemingly choose her own autonomy, her her bodily autonomy, and choose her rule as a ruler in that moment over her child in a sense when she's screaming, you know get it out and everything um because these two these two roles have kind of been again placed up as as conflicting with each other the role as a as a woman and as a mother and as a ruler um so it's really interesting seeing that and in this article too Emma Darcy states how the same way that Rainier is being physically torn apart by um the the struggles of this birth you know she's being psychically emotionally torn apart by these all these expectations being thrust upon her as a as a queen and as a mother so it's very fascinating and devastating seeing that seeing that play out on screen and seeing how Rhaenyra has to face that um part of me was so angry seeing 
how Rhaenyra is crying out in pain. She even cries out for Damon at one point, and Damon just won't go see her. One of the one of the lords or someone there even suggests, you know, Damon, do you want to go see the maester? You know, in other words, do you want to go support your wife? And he he just gives him a look and commands once again for them to send out the ravens. Um, and it's hard for me because. Part of me, you know, really felt like, you know, Damon needs to be supporting Rhaenyra right now, you know, but the other side is like, you know, perhaps time is of the essence. Maybe he really does need to be taking the time to plot this war. Like, I don't know. I was really conflicted in that moment. I mean, it seems like even Rhaenyra, you know, was saying that Damon has gone to plot his war and um, this kind of connects to conflicts that we see later in the episode where Damon is very interested in pursuing this bloody war and Rhaenyra really doesn't want that she she doesn't want to see the realm burn to ashes um so yeah it seems like early early in this episode we're seeing the seeds of that conflict planted where right away Damon is trying to plot war while Rhaenyra is trying to maintain some kind of semblance of control over the situation when she when she doesn't have it you know Damon's going and plotting and she's just trying to give birth and um you know, she's trying so desperately to maintain some kind of control. She even tells Jace, you know, hey, nothing's going to be done unless I command it. And Jace tries to stand by his mom in that sense. You know, he tries to stop Damon from sending out the ravens. Um, so, yeah, part of me was really, really conflicted in this moment. Because in some sense, this does feel like Damon trying to take control from Rhaenyra as a ruler. You know, this is a moment when... Rhaenyra is incapacitated, so Damon has kind of taken the reins and is saying, hey, I'm calling the shots right now, send these ravens, listen to me, when really they should be listening to Rhaenyra, you know, she, she's the queen now, you know, she's the ruler, so part of me sees this as like a really selfish action by Damon, yeah, trying to take control over Rhaenyra, but then the other part of me is thinking, you know, perhaps these preparations would have gone on anyway even without Rhaenyra there even though Rhaenyra desperately wants to be there but she couldn't in that moment so I felt very conflicted over like you know how how necessary is it that these preparations are made now you know why why can't we wait for Rhaenyra to to be present or is it so necessary that it needs to be done in the present you know is this Damon acting selfishly and trying to plot this war or is he doing what he sees as necessary in that moment, you know, time being of the essence and trying to plan as quickly as possible. I don't know, but I definitely was really conflicted with that, and I, I just really wanted to see Damon go comfort Rhaenyra as she's crying out for him, and he just doesn't, and it's heartbreaking seeing her, seeing him plot against her wishes, and, you know, that, that conflict does come up between them later in the episode, so this kind of plants the seeds of that. Um, moving on now to Damon and Caraxes demanding um, loyalty from the White Cloaks, and he brings Jace along to watch. Um, this reminded me of, of a couple different scenes from Game of Thrones, of course. Spoiler warning for uh, Season 7, but also just for the very beginning of Season 1. Um, I think this called back to both of those moments. I'll leave a timestamp in the description. Um you know, this is very reminiscent of the moment in season seven where Daenerys is demanding 
loyalty from the Lannister soldiers, and she has Drogon there, and she says, you know, hey, if you yield to me now, you know, you can join my side, whereas if you don't, my dragons are going to eat you, essentially. Um, and then she burns Randall, Tarly, and his son um, for refusing to kneel. Um, so this is very reminiscent of that, because Damon's very, making a very similar demand, you know, bow to me now or else. Um, but it's interesting how by having and kind of insisting that Joceris be there to watch, this scene was very reminiscent to me of season one, episode one of Game of Thrones, where um, Ned Stark's sons, where, where Jon Snow and Bran, are there to watch him behead a Night's Watchman for deserting after he encountered the White Walkers, and Jon tells tells Bran to not to look away. Um, it's very interesting because both of those scenes are are similar and are similar to this scene in the sense that they they are all about loyalty. Just like Damon said to Jace before this scene, he said, "You know, I'll show you the true meaning of loyalty." Both of those scenes are scenes in which you know if someone is perceived as breaking an oath of loyalty the the price is death and seems to be that kind of cutthroat attitude that Damon is trying to instill in Jace. It's interesting too how the idea of honor comes up in these scenes because in the example with uh, Jon Snow and Bran it very much the fact that John wanted Bran to watch this happen very much seemed to connect to this idea of honor because later John quotes Ned by saying, you know, the the man who cast like the, the sentence should swing the sword. You know, the idea that people should stick to their, their wills and their sentences and if you sentence someone to, to to die that you should do it yourself as an act of honor. Um and it seems like that idea of honor comes up here, too, because Damon is telling these knights, hey, if you refuse to bow to me and refuse to bow to Rhaenyra here and now, um, you'll be given an honorable death, he says, by being killed by Caraxes. So it's interesting seeing how scenes like this shed light on these characters, but also this world and how they perceive these ideas of, of loyalty and honor and the price for seemingly breaking those those oaths and those ideals. I'll touch more on that later in this episode, but it seems like that is especially a big deal in Game of Thrones, where we see a lot, like through characters, for example, like Jamie Lannister, we see the the issue of honor and loyalty and oaths come up in, in, in several characters in Game of Thrones and in several plot points. It's a very highly regarded value, it seems, in in this world, in Westerosi society. I want to move on now to this idea of the, the bonds that the Targaryens have with their dragons, because I think that's an idea that we see in these scenes as well. You know, as Daemon is threatening these white cloaks, Caraxes comes right on cue, right when he wants him to approach, so it implies a, a psychic connection between them. Like he knew, like Caraxes knew when Daemon wanted him to show up. We also see that idea of uh, the psychic bond between the dragons during Rhaenyra's childbirth when 
as she's crying out in pain, Cyrax is also crying out in pain. And it's just really interesting how we're getting these moments throughout the the episodes, throughout this series, that illuminate to us just how deep this psychic bond is between Dragon and Ryder. You know, even in episode 3, when Damon was fighting in the Stepstones, he got shot by an arrow and Caraxes cried out in pain. Um, so I think it's really fascinating that we're seeing more and more examples about the power of a bond between the dragon rider and their dragon. And I think that idea connects to the, the conflict we see later between Lucerus and Aemond, which I'll, I'll touch on that later. Um, but I think this also touches back to the idea of um, the Targaryens claim that they're able to tame dragons because they share blood with them, because they're kin with them. You know, even in, in season one of Game of Thrones, Viserys, Viserys the third, I think he is, not not Viserys, Rhaenyra's father, um, he claims that Targaryens quite literally have dragon blood flowing through their veins, or that they, they might, that that's a strong possibility. Um, and I think that idea is definitely kind of hinted at with seeing how strong their bond is, because that's how that's where they claim the bond between dragon and rider comes from is this shared blood and this them being kin with dragons um but it's interesting how that that idea is also sort of implied with the fact that Rhaenyra seems to give birth to a dragon baby uh, Barry Gower is a uh, prosthetic makeup artist who has worked on Game of Thrones and is currently working on House of the Dragon and he posted on his Instagram just a couple days ago a picture of the, the silicone baby that they created to be uh, Rhaenyra's stillborn child. Um, and you can see that, you know, it has like a misshapen head and has like scaly skin. Um, her spine is kind of sticking out like it's very, very lizard-like, the baby very dragon-like. And it's interesting because this is not the first time in these these television shows that um that a targaryen has given birth to a, a dragon-like child again spoiler alert for the, the the end of season one of game of thrones um daenerys's baby supposedly is that she has with with Khal drogo is dragon-like you know it, it's interesting because we we never see the baby and neither does Daenerys, but Miri Mazdur, the the witch that um the witch that was there, she claims that the baby yeah had like leathery wings like a dragon and scales and all these things and it seemed like the the, the interesting difference is that it seemed like in that scene to me it, I, I got the impression that the reason the baby was born that way was because um was because of Miri Mazdur because. Daenerys' baby, Rago, his life force was kind of used to save Drogo's life. And I, I got the impression while I was watching that scene that that's the reason the baby was, was malformed and turned into this dragon-like beast, was because, because of her um, meddling with Daenerys' pregnancy in that way. But it's interesting how we're seeing this instance of Rhaenyra giving birth to a dragon baby, supposedly without any kind of magical interference from a witch or anyone else. 
So it makes you, it makes me wonder if Daenerys would have given birth to a dragon baby either way, whether or not Miri Mazur had anything to do with it, um, or if it truly was a result of her meddling. Um, seeing Rhaenyra giving birth to a dragon baby definitely complicates that for me, makes me reconsider um, Daenerys' baby. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because I feel like this is a scene that could also imply the idea that it, that it is true that Targaryens quite literally have dragon blood in their veins because now we've seen more than one example of a Targaryen giving birth to a dragon-like child. Um, you could also say that this is the result of some, you know, Targaryen incest, right? Um, as well as these, you know, dragon genes in their blood that's creating literal dragon children. Uh, it's a very interesting, interesting idea. Um, and there's a lot of things that could be in, implied with Rhaenyra giving birth to a dragon baby as well as Daenerys and what could, that could mean for the Targaryens and the the role of magic and their bond with dragons and the actual implications of that and consequences of that as well as the consequences of their their incestuous habits you know this could be seen as a consequence of that as well um in the aftermath of Rhaenyra's um stillbirth um I thought it was interesting the way that Rhaenyra and Daemon were shot the way the frames were shot um where the way that Rhaenyra was leaning over and the the baby where she was wrapping wrapping her child was a mirror image of the way Damon was bent over his sword it's like it was showing their mirrored experiences of grief of course I just wish I could have we could have seen them grieve together more you know we don't really see any moment where Damon is comforting Rhaenyra you know even when she was sitting on the floor holding her baby um and Damon walked in, you know, we didn't get to see any kind of interaction there. And in this moment, too, they're mourning alone. And I thought I thought it was kind of interesting seeing them seeing them process their grief that way and do so separately. Because I guess I didn't expect that. And I guess I just really wanted to see them together comforting each other. Um, so I was kind of surprised that we didn't see that. Um, but I do think it was interesting seeing them being mere images of each other in this moment and, and showing the way the grief is is affecting both of them. I appreciate how in the Inside the Episode segment, um, Miguel Chapotnik mentioned that, you know, by experiencing this loss and, and cremating her child, Rhaenyra has become her father because her father had to do the same thing when he lost his son and, and his wife, Emma. Um, which is, is so interesting and so poetic when we consider that at this moment that she is having to deal with the loss of her child and is, is cremating her child the same way her father did. She's also taking on her father's position on the throne and, and taking on his crown. So really interesting that we're seeing that parallel there of how just how much Rhaenyra is having to step into her father's shoes, not only by taking on his role as king, but also having to face the same grief that he did. Um, and we saw just how deeply that grief affected Viserys for the rest of his life. 
you know, it seemed like he, he never forgave himself for the loss of Emma. We saw him, you know, crying over her rings and, and kissing those rings and, you know, accidentally calling Alice and Emma. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how this grief impacts Rhaenyra in the long term, the same way it, it affected her father. And I'll, I'll be interested to see that. I think one interesting like hint and one interesting detail we see in this funeral scene that um, that shows the way that the grief has has begun to affect Rhaenyra is um, just like with the funeral of uh, Emma and and the and her baby um, during that funeral, Rhaenyra, you know, was looking looking straight forward at the at the pyre. Uh, while Damon was looking at her, and that similarly happens here in this scene, so we see that parallel there. But uh, a difference between this funeral and and Emma's funeral is that at the moment when Rhaenyra lit the fire of her her mother and her brother, she she had to look away. You know, she couldn't look at it. Whereas in this scene, she's staring directly at the flames. Um, and I think it's interesting showing the way that, you know, she has changed, you know, in that first funeral scene, she was a, a child, a young teen. And in this one, she is a, an adult and a mother. Um, so I think this shows just how d differences in time and how she's facing these different, these situations. Um, and I think it's also showing the way that grief has affected her you know as a, as a child that was the first time she had experienced that grief of losing her mother um, and her baby brother and it's not something she was prepared to face it's not something she could even look at but perhaps now as an adult you know unfortunately this isn't the first time that she's experienced this kind of grief and now she's facing it more directly she could say you could say she's looking right at it and it shows, I think, a shift in the way that she is experiencing it and understanding it because of her, her age and how she's matured, but also because she's experienced this grief several times now throughout her life and perhaps it's affecting her in a different way now because of that, you know. I appreciate how in the inside the episode, after this episode, um, Emma Darcy stated that losing her children show Rhaenyra that she really knew nothing about grief you know she lost she lost her parents and she lost her lover and she thought she knew grief but then she loses her children and it's an entirely new experience it seems like and I think even just this this subtle nod to that to Emma's funeral and the just the subtle differences in the way that Rhaenyra is behaving kind of helps to begin to illustrate that, I think. So I really appreciated that. Tying back now to what I was talking about earlier with how Rhaenyra feels in conflict with her gender, with how she's trying to face her responsibilities as queen while at the same time being a mother and giving birth and being a woman. Um, the same way that the fact that she was having to give birth at the same time that this war is impending and she's expected to step up as a queen, um, and the fact that those 
those moments were happening at the same time were showing the the conflict Rainier feels with her gender. Um, I think that's similarly shown in this funeral scene as well, because at the same time that she's mourning the death and the loss of her baby, she's being crowned as queen and she's being expected to take on this mantle. And it's just so devastating that she's being crowned at her baby's funeral because it it almost shows that she doesn't even have the time that she needs to properly mourn her father or mourn her baby because she immediately has to, you know, accept this crown on her head and, and take on the role as queen and prepare for prepare for war. And it's it's devastating. It's like she can't experience this grief as a mother while at the same time trying to take on this mantle of queen. So I think it's really fascinating that this is another example in that episode of when they're how the how the showrunners have shown this conflict of how Rainier is trying to, to, to face and understand and rationalize her gender and how that conflicts with these Westerosi norms and what's expected of a ruler and what's expected of women and how those things come into conflict with each other. You know, this was another really heartbreaking, really devastating, really interesting look at that in a really interesting way to to illustrate that conflict by putting these two things, making these two moments simultaneous and putting them together and showing the way that they're conflicting with each other and how Rhaenyra has to, to, to face that and try to navigate that. It's also very poetic and fitting too that this moment of Rhaenyra's crowning is a very somber, fearful moment being at her, her child's funeral because you know, this is very reminiscent to me of when <clears throat> when Rhaenyra was crowned, or excuse me, when she was named heir at the end of episode one, and she just looked at the camera just full of fear, and when she was weeping at her father's bedside in episode eight, saying, you know, it's a really heavy burden that you've put on me becoming queen, I don't even know if I want it or if I can handle it. Um, it's definitely been made very evident throughout this series that you know, being, sitting on the throne is no small thing, and there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of danger that comes from that, and I think Rainier is astutely aware of that, and feels that tension and that heavy weight on her shoulders, so it's, it's very fitting that this moment of her crowning then is also a moment of, of deep sadness and fear, because I think it just kind of emphasizes that point of how dangerous and fearful becoming queen is and everything that entails for Rhaenyra um, and everything she'll have to face becoming queen and how she presumably is about to be thrust headlong into a war because of it and her life is in danger because of it. Um, so yeah, it's a, it was a very fitting way to, to illustrate that danger by having her crowning be in this way. It definitely made me teary-eyed the moment that Rhaenyra was crowned, you know, Damon turns around and crowns her, and he kneels to her and proclaims her his queen, and her theme starts playing, and um, everyone else kneels to her, and it's just such a, such a powerful moment, as well as being a very, a very somber, sad, and fearful moment, and I think all of Rainier's fear and all of her grief was really coalescing into this moment, and, um, thought it made it incredibly emotionally impactful, especially with the music. It just, 
it really pulled on my heartstrings. Um, I thought it was significant too, seeing how everyone bowed or knelt in this moment except for Rainey's. And I think that shows us that at this moment, Rainey's wasn't loyal to Rhaenyra. She proclaimed, you know, in the, in the, when she first showed up to Dragonstone at the beginning of this episode that she was only telling Rhaenyra this because she's loyal to her husband and her house. You know, she wasn't proclaiming at this moment that she was loyal to Rhaenyra. And I think that's shown to us in that she's not bowing to Rhaenyra in this moment. You know, she has yet to fully join her side. However, we see later in the episode that she does. She she does come around to supporting Rhaenyra. Um, immediately after this moment, when Rhaenyra walks into the, the, the room with the painted table, you know, she just looks so incredibly powerful with this crown on her head and her guards surrounding her. You know, this is I, I'd been waiting for this moment, you know, seeing Rhaenyra as this powerful queen. Like, it was very exciting to see her for the first time, you know, be introduced as the queen. You know, Damon announced her with all her new titles and having all these lords standing around the painted table looking to her and these guards surrounding her, the slow motion shot of her walking down the hall. It's all just very, very powerful, very effectively showing the her power as a queen um it also i think it's significant that this is the moment now when the table lights up the the candles are put under it and you just see these these fiery streaks going through the painted table as because now it feels like the, the the spark of war has begun you could say and that's what's lighting up the painted table you know now is when all these lords are here to prepare for war and that could be the the light and the fire of of Rhaenyra you could say and how she's stepping up to the plate and saying okay like it, it's time for me to plan like this is this is really happening and this this war is coming and um I need to start making preparations um so that that fiery preparation and, and um just the, the the fires of war and that anticipation and that that fear and, and all of that is here in this moment and it seems to kind of be activating the painted table you could say lighting it up with preparation for it being used now as as a piece to to plan war so I, I thought that was really interesting and I enjoy seeing that contrast between the moment before the painted table is illuminated in the moment when it is first illuminated to to illustrate kind of the significance of what that means i also kind of appreciated the the moment of levity in this scene where there's a bit of awkwardness with rainier walking in that room it's almost as if people don't know how to how to look at her anymore almost as if they treat her differently now and see her differently because she is their queen now um even the guards, you know, try to continue to follow her, and she, like, gives them a look, and yeah, it's just everyone, especially Rhaenyra, seems to be kind of awkwardly trying to assume these new roles with Rhaenyra as queen and how things are changing because of that. Um, I really appreciate how Rhaenyra, you know, nodded to Reyna and Vela and asked them to join the around the painted table with her and be part of these war preparations because 
it's such a contrast to how her father seemed to exclude her from small council meetings at, at the beginning of the season. You know, even after she was named heir, she was still made to be a cupbearer, you know, rather than having a seat at the small council. And, you know, she was making suggestions of what should be done about the war in the step zones. And instead, she was sent away to go and, you know, do something else, make another decision. She was being actively excluded from those conversations. So I appreciate that Rhaenyra is taking a stand to not do that same thing to Reyna and Vela. I think it implies, you know, kind of showcases this this progressive nature of Rhaenyra, you know, by becoming queen and and taking on this mantle of becoming the first queen of the Seven Kingdoms. She's trying to challenge this patriarchal system and this this, this patriarchal order that rejects female rulers and is inviting other women to uh, to step up in positions of leadership and, and be active parts of of these preparations um, as well as her and I really appreciate that it shows me Rainier's determination to to make a positive change in society in that regard uh, it was also interesting in this scene seeing the 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 conflict continue to intensify between Rhaenyra and Damon. Rhaenyra, you know, clearly is displeased that Damon sent ravens without her permission because she didn't want anything to be done while she was giving birth. Um, Damon also seems to kind of talk over Rhaenyra, interrupt her at one point. Um, and I like how this idea was mentioned in the Inside the Episode segment as well, the idea that we're seeing this tension between Damon and Rhaenyra of their different wants, with Damon wanting to immediately pursue, you know, war and bloodshed, and Rhaenyra wanting to, Rhaenyra being more hesitant to take on that route and wanting to pursue a more peaceful, um, a more peaceful uh, course of action. Um, and the conflict with how they have these different opinions, but all that conflict is happening, you know, within the confines of a marriage. So that's very interesting to see. And I think this is a conflict that is boiling between Damon and Rhaenyra throughout the episode, you know, beginning with Damon sending the ravens against Rhaenyra's wishes while she's giving birth to this scene to later when they, they have this confrontation um, in front of the fire. Um, so moving on now to the moment that Otto... Otto and company show up. Of course, I love that this is like a callback to episode two when Damon and Otto also had, you know, this standoff on Dragonstone. It's just interesting now seeing Rhaenyra almost being on the opposite side of it now, you could say. Um, you know, the first time she showed up at Dragonstone to defuse this situation, she wasn't necessarily on Otto's side, but she, she went there to confront Damon and to, to stop whatever bloodshed was going to happen and to, to get Damon to surrender. But this time, she's she's on the other side. She's standing, her and Damon are standing on the same side and they're trying to um, confront Otto. So that's a really interesting showing that parallel, but showing the difference in, um, in allegiances in this moment compared to the moment in episode two. And I thought it was significant, too, because when Rhaenyra shows up to Dragonstone in episode two, she does it to prevent bloodshed. She does it to find a peaceful res to find a peaceful resolution to the to the conflict. And she does that. 
And it seems like Rhaenyra has very similar intentions here. You know, Damon takes out his sword, and it seems like there's this huge standoff, but Rhaenyra is the one who says no. Like, we're going to do this peacefully. Okay, Otto, I'll, I'll come to you with an answer tomorrow. Um, and I, I thought that was significant, too, showing those parallels, too, and how, just like back then in episode two, Rhaenyra still would rather find a more peaceful resolution to things than, than resort to, to bloodshed. And I, of course, loved those those banger of lines with her saying, you know, I'm Queen Rhaenyra now, and Damon talking about how, oh, I'd rather feed my sons to the dragons and have them serve your usurper king, and, oh, it was just great. I love seeing their, their Targaryen fire in full display, telling Otto to just leave. <laughs> um, and that was please. Um, going back to the idea of oaths, that I was talking about earlier, you know, I thought it was strange hearing hearing um, Otto say that, oh, stale oaths will not put you on the on the throne, Rhaenyra, because she was saying that, hey, all these lords swore fealty to me, you know, they, they need to support me in becoming queen or else they're oath breakers, pretty much. It's funny how Otto is pretty much like, that doesn't matter, <laughs> because it was so long ago, it's a stale oath. I thought that was weird because in Game of Thrones, we're definitely shown that oaths are a big deal. Breaking an oath is like a, a terrible sin, it seems like, to the people of Westeros. Again, look at characters like Jamie Lannister, right? Um, he, you know, he was constantly vilified as an oathbreaker and a kingslayer because he, he, he betrayed his oath as a white cloak to protect his king by... by killing his king um and the conflict of oaths and how do you which ones do you stay true to and can you ever stay true to your oaths and what if they conflict each other and everything like oaths the point i'm trying to make is oaths are a big deal and it it seems in this world so i found it kind of interesting that Otto was saying in this moment that they didn't matter or that you know, from long enough ago, people forget them, and it doesn't matter anymore. Um, so I found that to be kind of kind of a surprising contradiction. I wonder what that says about these the the people of this society if they only see oaths as important when it's convenient to them, you know, or how willing they are to break oaths, such as their oath to support Rhaenyra's claim to the throne, if it benefits them, like like Lord Boris Baratheon, who. Um, well, first of all, you know, his father made that oath, not him. So I think that's definitely part of it. But also him saying, you know, hey, um, Rainier is not offering me anything. Like, Eamon and, and Team Green are offering me marriage packs for my oath. So I think it's interesting showing that conflict between this idea of something, you know, so noble and so honorable. This idea of staying true to an oath and the importance of that um, versus perhaps to other characters how that might not seem so important or how the importance of oaths might seem relative depending on someone's you know personal position or what they think they can get from maintaining an oath or breaking it. The idea of oath making and breaking and keeping is also really significant to Kristen Cole's character. You know he's really torn up about the idea that he broke his oath by by sleeping with Rhaenyra um 
but I think it's interesting too because you know that oath was so important to him because it's, it's all he had he didn't come from a noble house you know him becoming a white cloak he saw as like the highest honor of anyone in his family so I wonder too if that's part of it you know if, if someone doesn't start out with much but then they achieve such a high position of status in this society like Chris and Cole did becoming a white cloak um perhaps that make that that makes that oath mean a lot more to him versus other characters who perhaps have more like Boris Baratheon right you know he has a he has a whole kingdom um and how those oaths then such as the oath to support Rhaenyra might not mean as much to these characters who um or they have more, you could say. You could say that they don't have as much to lose by breaking an oath. Or they perhaps might have things to gain by breaking an oath, like this marriage pact that Boris secures for his house. So I'm just really fascinated with this idea of oaths and their significance, or when they are and aren't significant, and the, the kind of the impact that that has on different characters, because that seems like a really significant point in Game of Thrones and also in this show. Um... I love when Rhaenyra just walks right up to Otto and calls him a traitor and rips off his pin and throws it into the ocean. Like, I just thought that was so funny. And when the maester approached, um, I really thought he was going to be handing Otto a replacement pin. <laughs> like, that would have been really hilarious. Like, the second Rhaenyra just throws it into the ocean, Otto just pops on a new one. Like, I have a spare. Like, <laughs> that's what I thought was going to happen. But yeah, that was... That was funny. I appreciated Brainier's like brazenness. Like she was gonna call it as it is. Like you're a traitor. You don't deserve to have this pin of throwing it in the ocean. Like, ugh, I loved it. Um, so of course you know the maester actually hands Rhaenyra the page that she ripped out of the book, um, when her and Alicent were were friends, and how this has become sort of a symbol of their friendship. Um. I thought it was really sweet seeing the impact this has on Rhaenyra. You know, she sheds a tear. Clearly, she does still love, have a love for Alicent. And it seems like Alicent does still have a love for Rhaenyra, too, you know. Um, you know, the way that she, she clutched her hand after that family dinner and was like, you know, don't leave, you just arrived. Like, it seems like there's still genuine love there as friends and a desire to reconcile them. So it seemed like... That was really on full display here, Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra's heart was aching, remembering her friend Alicent. Um, but what I think is interesting too about this scene is how this just how this illuminates the extent of Otto's emotional manipulation, because it's so twisted that he was criticizing his daughter for showing mercy to Rhaenyra and not wanting to kill her, and she's like, "Oh, you, he was like all like, you know, are you showing?" this this mercy to Rhaenyra because you guys used to be friends you know were you making this like exception for her it's like he was accusing it of being a weakness and I love that Allison clapped back and was like you know it's not a weakness to not want to kill someone in cold blood like um so it's strange how on the one hand he's trying to discourage Allison from feeling the the friendly emotions of you know sympathy and remembering the friendship Rainier and Allison had, whereas he's trying to make Rainier remember that. He's trying to really get Rainier to to dwell on that in order to persuade her to to relinquish the crown. So it's really interesting seeing just how Otto is using 
the, the, the former friendship between Allison and Tamarineira to manipulate them both, you know, by telling Allison, you need to stop thinking about this, you need to forget this, but telling Rhaenyra, hey, you need to remember this, um, all just for his own means, you know, all to get the outcome that he wants, which is Rhaenyra dead and Aegon on the throne. So very fascinating seeing how Otto has weaponized Rhaenyra and Allison's friendship and their affection for each other and is trying to use it for his own ends and his own means. Um, moving on, I appreciate just how much we see Rainier's capacity to be a good queen because she's so much more concerned about unity and peace in the realm than her own position on the throne. You know, she she says that she doesn't want to burn everything down, you know, as a very Daenerys-esque line, you know, Daenerys also says that in Game of Thrones, she says she doesn't want to be queen of the ashes, you know, Rhaenyra says she doesn't want to rule over a bunch of ash and bone, you know, and she, she talks about, you know, what's more important, peace and unity in the realm, or, or me being queen, and, um, I really appreciated that from her, and it shows, yeah, I think it shows her her good heart and how she doesn't want this this senseless bloodshed. Um, and it shows just this conflict she has throughout the episode of these lords itching to go to war, especially Damon, but Rhaenyra trying trying to quell them, trying to prevent that. And this is the moment too where that conflict between Rhaenyra and Damon comes to comes to a head and. Um, they order everyone else out, and Rhaenyra accuses Damon of just wanting war so that he can kill Otto, and that it not really having anything to do with like this 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 succession battle, and um, and you know this is this moment where where Damon attacks Rhaenyra and chokes her, um, and it's interesting how this this is such a moment of. Where Rhaenyra and Daemon get this understanding that Rhaenyra really was always the heir. You know, where Daemon sees that Rhaenyra was told something, was told about this prophecy, was told about this thing that only heirs know about, um, that Daemon never heard. And, you know, this reminds me a lot of uh, in episode three when Viserys was talking to um, Lord Jason Lannister. And he said, you know, it's not like I named Rhaenyra heir on a whim. You know, and this this proves just how true that is. You know, he truly saw Rhaenyra as his heir, and he truly never saw Damon as his heir because he never told Damon about this prophecy. And it's interesting because it seems like that's the moment that this dawns on both of them, where Rhaenyra says, "You know, it was never you, was it?" Um, and just that that understanding really weighs heavily on them in this moment, and crashes down on both of them. I was really shocked first time I watched this episode seeing Damon hurt Rhaenyra. You know, I definitely saw him as someone who could never hurt Rhaenyra, and I was I was really shocked about that. But I think the more I thought about it, and the more I heard these other these other thoughts about how just how much this sh this showcases the idea of legitimacy and how this reframes for Damon and Rhaenyra their thoughts about. Viserys and how Viserys saw them in relation to the throne. Um, it made this moment make a lot of sense for their characters, despite how 
how shocking it was. Of course, that's not me in any way trying to justify what Damon did. Of course, it's not okay. You know, this is an act of domestic violence, and that's that's terrible and, and inexcusable. Um, I'm just trying to explain from, from a character point of view why why it makes sense for these characters to be acting this way. Moving on now to Corlise and Rainis. Um, you know, I appreciated how Corlise finally saw Rainis's point of view and finally admitted what Rainis has been saying all along, which was that, um, you know, there's no use for this, this ambition for the throne. You know, all this ambition is going to do is put the lives of our children in danger, which is exactly what it does. You know, both of their children are dead now. Um, Corlys almost died. Um, and it seems like this is what it took for, for Corlys to finally understand. And um, it, it killed Vaymond as well. And it seemed like Corlys was finally like, okay, like, I understand you were right all along. My ambition for the throne is over. But I thought it was interesting, too, how... Corley said in this moment, like, you know, we're not going to take sides in this war. We're just going to go to Driftmark and live a quiet life. It, it it reminds me a lot of earlier in the episode when Rainey said, you know, um, I didn't kill the Greens because this isn't my war to start. Um, similarly, Corley is saying, hey, we're going to, like, try to not get involved in this war. But... I just think it's so strange to hear these characters say that because, again, like, Corlys, your granddaughters are betrothed to Rhaenyra's sons. Like, you are a part of this conflict. You have allied yourself with a marriage pact through Team Black, so you can't you can't just step away from this. Like, you have to be a part of this. And um, I appreciate how Rhaenys was able to, to shed some light on Rhaenyra's motives. You know, at first, Corlys was still blaming Rhaenyra for Laenor's death. Um, and Rhaenys was saying, you know, hey, like, Rhaenyra is actually the only one keeping the realm from being plunged into war right now. Like, everyone around that table wants her to go to war, and she's telling them not to. Like, I think even just with showing her restraint, perhaps Rhaenyra has proven herself as a worthy queen to Rhaenys, and... Maybe that's where her change of heart comes from, and, and perhaps that's where Corlys's change of heart comes from as well. You know, seeing that moment of him walking in to the room with the painted table. Again, those Valarians love their grand entrances, don't they? Um, he definitely gets one. Um, and seeing him proclaim for Rhaenyra's side... Um, and, you know, just how Rhaenyra looks really surprised at that moment and really humbled in that moment um, that the Valarians have decided to definitively support her. Um, it's just such a relief seeing the support when for so long, you know, there was this animosity between Rhaenyra and Rhaenys. Um, Corlys and Rhaenys suspected Rhaenyra was responsible for Laenor's death. And, um, you know, of course, there was the whole drift mark succession crisis happening and um it's just it's such a beautiful relief now seeing the Valarians definitively stand by Rhaenyra and it almost feels like Rhaenyra and Rhaenys have have buried the hatchet you know we've seen these two really not been a fan of each other throughout the entire series they've um 
not really had any nice things to say to each other or about each other. Um, but to see them really ally with each other in this moment and have this mutual respect and understanding of each other and have Rainy see Rhaenyra's capacity to be a good ruler and how that seems to have swayed her to want to support Rhaenyra. It's just, it's such a beautiful moment and it's such a beautiful resolution of this conflict that we've seen between them again through throughout the course of the season. It was also such a beautiful, powerful moment of relief when Corlys proclaimed that they have controlled the Stepstones um, and are setting up like garrisons and things to keep it defended. Because this is exactly what Rhaenyra said should have been done a long time ago. I think it. I think it was back in episode six. You know where she was kind of criticizing Alicent and the rest of the council for saying, "Hey, like the second Damon and Corlys won the Stepstones for the first time and killed the crab feeder, we should have set up garrisons and you know kept men there and done something to keep them guarded. You know this is what Rhaenyra wanted and what she thought was best." Um, and to see that Corlys has done that successfully is incredible. Like, that seems like a pretty huge advantage to Team Black. Because as Corlys said, this could be used as a strategic position for Team Black. They can cut off shipments to King's Landing and force them to surrender by cutting off their, their supply lines, which is just so brilliant. So yeah, this really proves that there's some serious strength to House War, and of course... I don't think there was any doubt of that before, but especially now that they've taken the stepstones and the way Corlys proposes that they they use that position to their advantage, like it's a it's a huge advantage for Rhaenyra to have the Valarians and control of the the narrow sea under her belt. Um, so that was such a great and exciting thing to see. I also thought it was such a a beautiful powerful moment seeing jace stand up and saying hey you know instead of sending ravens mother you should send us um because dragons are more are faster and more convincing you know this reminded me a lot of rhaenyra when the the conflict between the stepstones was happening earlier in the uh in the show in, in episode two rhaenyra was saying hey like we should send our dragons to the stepstones in the form in order to show, like, a show of force. Like, she was telling her father, send me. Like, I have a dragon. We have several dragon riders here. Send me to the Stepstones and we'll show the Triarchy what's up. And that show of force may persuade them, may end this war. Um, so the fact that Jace makes a, a similar proposal, you know, really shows that he's his, his mother's son, um, shows their similarities there um so yeah that was a really beautiful moment and as Emma Darcy said in the inside of the episode now this is the moment where Rhaenyra for the first time has to look at her sons as men um and it's really it was beautiful seeing them really step up in this moment and want to support their mother in this way um the same way that Rhaenyra wanted to step up when when she was young Going back to, to the relationship between Luke and Rhaenyra, it definitely seems like Luke has a, a, a closer attachment to Rhaenyra. Perhaps that's because he's, he's the younger one. Um, but it's so sweet, you know, seeing this moment when Rhaenyra is preparing to send them off and is giving them the scrolls, you know. Um, 
Luke calls her mother instead of your grace at first, the way Jace does. And, you know, the way they hold each other's hands and Rhaenyra, you know, brushes his shoulder and the way they look at each other. Like, it seems like, seems like Luke is definitely more attached to his mother, you could say, than, than, um, than Jace is, which I think makes the pain of Lucerus' death even more even more palpable and intense for Rhaenyra. Like, I think they definitely, the showrunners wanted to give us a sense of how close this mother-son bond is to just really send home and even deepen and emphasize just how hard his death is going to hit Rhaenyra and affect her. Um, and then when they take off Jace, Luke, and Rhaenys, um, I've been calling it Daenerys' theme, Throughout the course of my podcast, I don't quite know if it's Daenerys' theme or if it's just more of a, a dragon theme generally, but that theme plays again as they take off. And I love any time they play this theme in the show, you know, just it conjures back images of Game of Thrones and Daenerys riding her dragons. And it's just, it's a beautiful theme. I really enjoy it. Just really showcases the, the beauty and the majesty of the dragons every time I hear it. Um, moving on now to Damon singing to Mermithor. This is a this is a really interesting scene. Definitely has been a hot topic of conversation. Seems like online, um, I've seen several translations of the song, which is super cool. Um, uh, some a piece of content I really like that's been been made inspired by this scene is um, David Lightbringer, the YouTuber, really cool song of ice and fire YouTuber. Um, he made a video kind of theorizing on what this song is really about and how he he thinks that this song kind of explains the origins of the bond between um, the uh, the Valyrian dragon riders, the Targaryens, and um, and the dragons, and what the three heads of the dragon might really mean. Uh, I really appreciate his thought on that and his theories. It's not. A theory that that I'd ever heard before or really thought about. Um, so yeah, definitely check that out if you're more interested in what exactly Damon's song might be about, and if you want to hear his theory about where the bond between Targaryens and dragons came from and how that works, because this is kind of an alternative theory to the idea of, like, Targaryens having dragon's blood in their veins. This is, like, an, an, alternate, an alternate interpretation of how they might be quote-unquote related and like kin of each other allowing for that bond so really interesting stuff yes very beautiful lullaby type song that Damon is playing um I do wonder who will ride Vermithor and if Damon is preparing Vermithor to be claimed um so that's that's interesting um I also appreciate the way that this scene is shot to show that connection between dragon and Targaryen, you know, dragon and dragon rider, um, how Daemon and Vermithor both see each other, you know, within each other's eyes and the reflection of each other's eyes, you know, showing that bond and that capacity for connection. Very interesting. And I'm interested to see where, where that goes and what, what plans... Damon has, you know, we, we know he wants, um, 
more riders to claim more dragons because there's 13 dragons on Dragonstone. He thinks that's a, a huge advantage for Team Black, which it is. But yeah, just like Rhaenyra said, who's going to ride those dragons? I, I guess that's a question that'll need to be answered perhaps in, in Season 2. Um, moving on now to Lucerys arriving in Storm's End. Um, just like its name, it's fitting that Storm's End is very stormy and ominous. Um, I can't help this also, seeing this is also foreshadowing the, the danger and the ominous situation that Lucerys is stepping into. Little does he know. Um, in that moment, too, where we see Vagar just looming over the horizon amidst all this, um, this thunder and this lightning and these clouds, you know, it, it made me feel like I was looking at Godzilla, you know, over like a cityscape. And it's interesting how there was like a horror aspect to, to that shot. Um, Vagar just being this, this monstrous beast looming in the distance, again, kind of foreshadowing Lucerus's demise that will come at the hands of Vagar. I thought it was strange that Boros wouldn't read the scroll that Lucerus brought himself. I wondered if this is because, like, he's illiterate and he can't read, or if this was just, like, a refusal to read, some kind of, like, egotistical stubbornness, like, not wanting to read. I don't really understand why that is, but it, it, it yeah, it wasn't expected. Um, I guess it shows you something about him as a person um but again whether he just simply can't read or refuse to I'm, I'm not sure tying back to like the ominous foreshadowing of the storm you know there's definitely some some irony to the fact that the moment that Cyrus gets clear of the storm and and is amidst clear skies and thinks that he's in the clear is the moment that he dies um so there's definitely some cruel irony there um, and diving more into this, this conflict between Aemon and Luke on these dragons and how it leads to Luke's, um, leads to Luke's death, excuse me. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, thinking about the way that this may have happened. You know, it seems like it could have been a combination of what Viserys said in episode one, that, you know, we don't control the dragons, it's an illusion. Um, we've definitely been shown that dragons are intelligent creatures and have thoughts and, and wills of their own and will act, may not act the way that their riders would like. Um, even earlier in, in the show when Lena was begging um, Vagar to, to kill her, you know, he didn't listen at first. You know, he didn't want to set her on fire. He didn't want to kill her. He clearly cared about her and had a reluctance. Um, so it seems like the, the dragons do have some autonomy, you know, they, they can for, think for themselves and they might not always act the way that their riders command. And that was seen in full force here, you know, both Aemond and Lucerus were, were commanding their dragons to serve them and saying, no, you know, don't do that, stop, like, um, but I think another interesting thing to consider too, when we think about, think about how this, this conflict happened and how Luke was killed um, is that part of this could also be because Lucerus and Aemond are so young and are not as experienced of dragon riders as some of the older dragon riders we see in this show. You know, it seems like more experienced dragon riders who've been riding their dragons for longer 
have pretty impeccable control over their dragons. Like, um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, Damon was able to, to summon Caraxes without even saying a word when he was thre threatening the White Cloaks. Now, they came right at the moment Damon wanted them to, and, um, you know, when we connect that to the, the bond that Dragon and Dragon Rider seems to have with Cyrax and Caraxes being able to feel the physical pain of Rhaenyra and Daemon, respectively. Um, even the, the bond between Rhaenys and Melis, you know, there doesn't seem to be any conflict there with the way that they behave. Rhaenys seems perfectly comfortable and in full control over, over Melis. And it seems like that's because Daemon, Rhaenyra, and Rhaenys have all been riding their dragons for decades. You know, they all are very experienced dragon riders, and with that, there seems to be that very deep bond with their dragons. Being able to feel their physical pain, but also there doesn't seem to be conflict with... There doesn't seem to be conflicts between the way they want to act and the way their dragons want to act. So, it's interesting to consider how Aemon and Luke's youth and their lack of experience as dragon riders may have, may have led to this as well. Um... Perhaps their bond with their dragons is not as strong as it is for more experienced dragon riders, so they have a harder time controlling them, and that may make it more likely, perhaps, for their dragons to act in their own way and out of the interest of the rider. Um, but of course, I think this also shows us that the dragons do have minds and thoughts of their own and may act outside of the wishes of their riders, so... I think it's interesting the way that this this scene kind of highlights that and showcases the, the consequence of that. Again, these dragons are, are huge, powerful, devastating weapons. Um, and you can't really, you have to be cautious about, about playing with them or else, you know, people are going to get hurt. People are going to die like, like Luceris did. I wonder, too, um, if Aemon is going to own up to this or not. You know, when he returns to King's Landing, I wonder what he's going to say. I wonder if he's going to confess that Lucerus is dead or keep it a secret or say that he murdered him or say that it was an accident. Like, I, I really don't know how Eamon is going to justify or explain this or, you know, I mean, it's clear that he didn't want to kill Lucerus. Now, he had this look on his face after he did it, like oh no, like, I've really started something now, like, what am I gonna do now? Um, even in the inside the episode, they say, like, you know, this, this seems like a declaration of war in a lot of ways, you know, if crowning Aegon wasn't a declaration of war, then killing princess, now queen Rhaenyra's son definitely is, um, So it's interesting seeing how Eamon may have unintentionally, you know, kicked off this war just as a result of his own, you know, recklessness and his youth and experience with his dragons and how he led his his emotions and his desire for his revenge against Lucerus for taking his eye um, really get out of hand and have really severe unintended consequences. So finally, when we come to that final shot, um, I love finding out that the the shot of 
Damon approaching Rhaenyra, you know, grabbing her hand, and they, they walk to the fireplace as he reveals that Lucerus has been killed. Uh, it's incredible hearing that this was all Matt Smith's idea, and that this was explained in a GQ article published on um, October 24th, um, which is, it's just so fascinating, because, again, there's there's such a tension there, you know, sometimes the best thing in film or television is what you don't see, and there's there's such beautiful tension and power in how they don't show us Rainier's face right away. You know, we see her pain, just the just the way that she stumbles and lowers her head, and this really somber version of her theme is playing, and then the music swells and turns really sinister. Um, before you know, she finally turns around and just seeing that fire in her eyes and that new look on her face like oh it made me think like we're gonna see this angry vengeful bloodthirsty murderous grieving mother Rhaenyra um and I hope we do um because you know just like Emma Darcy said this the loss of her children seems to be a, a grief that Rhaenyra hasn't experienced before, and it changes the way that she looks at grief and changes the way she looks at the world. So I'm so excited and intrigued and fascinated to see how this grief is going to affect Rhaenyra moving forward in the story. I mean, seeing this look on his face tells me now that perhaps that 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 trepidation, that um, wanting peace and wanting to prevent war. It seems like that's all gone now that that's all faded away and that her, her grief and her desire for vengeance and rage perhaps is gonna, is gonna overpower that. Um, yeah, that look in her eyes just gave me chills. I'm just, I'm really fascinated to see what happens next and how this grief changes Rhaenyra and her outlook on things. Um, and yeah, I love, I love that this was the final scene because like I um like I mentioned in my live stream before the season finale um I really enjoy scenes in Game of Thrones and, and House of the Dragon in front of fireplaces. It always feels like these very intimate, very emotionally charged scenes, you know, characters because normally in front of a fireplace it's these conversations between characters and like these close intimate relationships um and it tends to be these very you know fiery conflicts that seems to be emphasized by the fact that they're in front of a fireplace right you know fireplaces tend to be places of community you know people have fireplaces in their living rooms and people gather around those and around campfires with their friends and with their family to exchange thoughts and stories and things so i guess the, the setting of a fireplace feels like a very intimate setting to me and seeing how in Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon fireplaces, um, scenes in front of fireplaces have always been, yeah, very emotionally charged or emotionally intimate, whether that be characters getting into an argument, um, or, you know, just really, really connecting with each other. Um, so I, I really appreciated how this scene was also a scene in front of a fireplace, you know, Rainier has delivered this devastating news um and it seems like a moment of, of reconciliation almost between Damon and Rhaenyra you know the way he grabs her hand to comfort her and they walk together towards the fire um it's a moment of of unity for them and I think it again implies their 
their commonality. You know, Viserys said that Damon and Rainier are both have the blood of the dragon. They're both fiery. Um, so perhaps we're being shown that that similarity here with the the visual similarity of them, and seeing them walk towards this fire again. That could metaphorically represent Rhaenyra giving in to her fiery desires. She could be walking towards her own Targaryen fieriness, which may, you know, rear its its full ugly face in the in the season and the episodes to come in the in the wake of the death of her son and how she's gonna have to face that grief and how it'll affect her behavior and her outlook um in the war to come so uh, the last thing i want to discuss is something that was mentioned and in inside the episode that i thought was really interesting where um it's discussed how um well emma darcy says that through motherhood rhaenyra has seemingly built kind of a tribe of her own and her own family and created a space where she's free to be herself um and how this kind of connects back to episode three when Viserys was really urging Rhaenyra to get married and she was really resistant to it and you know Viserys was saying you know you don't need to be so lonely and so angry anymore like and Rhaenyra's like oh what you think a man you know getting married will make me happy and Viserys is saying well I think a family will um and it seems like that's really the case. You know, Rhaenyra has built her own tribe and her own family through these these children. And that just adds to the tragedy of their loss and how it's like members of, of her tribe, members of her family are being picked off now. Um, which again, it'll just be so interesting seeing how that grief changes her and how um, how she faces it and how that changes her outlook on the world and on this this war and this conflict. So that is all my thoughts on the season finale of House of the Dragon. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been my longest episode yet. I didn't anticipate that. Um, but I did. There was just so much to say about this finale. It was just incredible, very emotionally charged, very impactful um, episode. You know, so much of the conflict in it seemed to be painted by Rainier's grief um, and how grief affects her, which was just such a fascinating thing to see. Um, thank you so much for joining me, and I'll see you next week for the next episode of uh, Under the Lemon Tree. See y'all next time.